We're studying this book of Exodus, and it's the second book in the Old Testament, second book in the Bible. And today we come across one of the most important stories in the entire Old Testament. It's the story of the first Passover. The Passover. Now some of you may have heard that word Passover before. Maybe you know a bit of the story. Or maybe you don't know the story, but you have good Jewish friends that every time around Easter time, when Christians are celebrating Easter, your Jewish friends are celebrating Passover. And you know that this is a Jewish holiday that is still celebrated today by Jews around the world. Now, in a sense, you would be right if you were to say that. Passover is a deeply Jewish holiday. And that's because it's rooted in the Old Testament, which makes it also a Christian holiday. In fact, one of the reasons they celebrate the, cel the celebration of Passover is because God instructed them to in the very passage that we're going to read today. Let me read you that little section. Exodus chapter 12, verses 24 to 27. It reads this. You shall observe this rite... That's the celebration of Passover. You shall observe this rite, where am I, as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. God instructed his people to celebrate this every year, to remember the power of what happened this first Passover. So what is the Passover? Why is it so central to the people of God? And what does it have to do with Christianity? What I want to show to you today is that the Passover is the forerunner. In fact, it's a deeply symbolic and powerful story of the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason this story is part of the history of God's people is because in it, the details of the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done for us are clearly laid out and foreshadowed for us thousands of years before Jesus ever stepped foot on this planet. So today I want to tell you the story of the first Passover. Now let's back up just a little bit. We've been studying this book of Exodus. Let's remind ourselves a bit of context where we are and where we got to the last Sunday. Remember, we're studying chapter by chapter through this book. Moses was a young Jewish man, born as a Jew, raised as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's court. So he has a bit of an identity crisis as a young man, and he lashes out. He ends up killing an Egyptian soldier. As young men who are coming into their own, who aren't quite confident in themselves, aren't quite confident in their God, they take on risky behavior. And, and this young man killed an Egyptian. He fled into the wilderness. And this was all while God's people, the Jews, were being held in slavery in Egypt under a terrible taskmaster named Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians at the time. And, and while Moses was in the wilderness, wandering, running away from his people and from his old life back in Egypt, God got a hold of him. He said, I got a plan for your life. Moses, I'm calling you. I'm going to send you back to the very place you ran away from. And through you, through your mouth and through your hands and through what I'm going to do through your life, I'm going to free my people out of slavery. I'm going to do all the powerful things, but I need you to go and you're going to be my mouthpiece, Moses. So Moses walked back into Egypt and he went to Pharaoh and he listened to what God told him to do. And Moses requested that Pharaoh would let his people go to remove them and to release them from slavery. But last week, Kenson opened up uh, the last few chapters we studied and we saw that Pharaoh did not take kindly to the idea to let his slave labor go. 
He, he didn't want to let the slave labor go. That's how he was getting everything done in, their, in the ancient cities of Egypt. And so he said no. And so God sent ten plagues, ten acts of wonder, ten powerful demonstrations of the power of God on the Egyptian people. And last week we covered the first nine plagues. Today we're going to cover the tenth plague in which the Passover is instituted. Now, what were these plagues? Let's recap for a moment. The plagues were three things. Number one, they were an act of grace. They were an act of grace. Now, how are they grace? These plagues gave the Egyptians time and evidence of the power of God and said, Egyptians, turn. There's judgment coming. Don't wait till the 10th plague. If you wait till the 10th plague, it's too late. Turn before you get there. And so God sent these powerful, awesome wonders upon the people, uh, upon the land of Egypt in order to give them time to turn from God, to turn from their gods and trust in the living God. It was an act of grace. Number two, it was an act of judgment. An act of judgment on a terribly sinful and wicked people. You remember how the whole book of Exodus started. It was with Pharaoh killing all the infants of the people of God. Not only was he a horrible slave master and treated them harshly, inhumanely, we would say, but he then went and killed newborn babies by throwing them into the Nile River. Nations can't get away with that for that long before judgment comes. God is a God of judgment. And these plagues were judgment over the sins of the Egyptians. And number three, this was an act of spiritual warfare. With each plague, what we saw is that God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh is his name, he is attacking one of the Egyptian gods. And so in the very first plague, when he turned the Nile red, it was the Nile River that was the God of life, the God of sustenance of life. He gave all the water that they needed to drink, and they believed there was a God of the Nile River. Well, then Yahweh shows up. He says, you think that gives you life? Here, let me make it not life-giving. He turns the whole thing blood red. And he just nails the, the God that they thought was their God of life. He says, he doesn't give you life. I give you life. Turn from your ways. Trust in Yahweh. Systematically, every plague, the plague of frogs, the plague of boils, the plague of lice, every plague that came was a direct attack on one of the Egyptians' gods. It was an engagement of spiritual warfare. Now, what's unique about the first nine plagues, what we have seen so far, is that the first nine plagues directly were an attack over the Egyptians and their sinfulness. So, while these plagues were all happening, the people of God weren't impacted by them. Somehow, by the grace of God, they were befalling all the Egyptians, but God's people who were held in slavery didn't have any of it. So, in, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 26, during the plague of hail, we read this. Only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were, so that the Jews were being kept in a territory of Egypt called Goshen, only in that land was there no hail. Now this was a tremendous hail. This wasn't like, you know, a little Chicago hail. This was epic hail that destroyed pretty much the entire landscape. The one area of Egypt that survived the plague was where the people of God were. It was Goshen. During the plague of darkness in Exodus chapter 10, the entire land was covered in darkness. And then in Exodus chapter 10, verse 23, we read this. They did not see one another. Notice how, how, how thick the darkness was. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. 
Get that? Three days. Anything else happen in three days? For three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Three days in darkness. And yet, there was light in the land of Goshen. It, it's interesting. You've got to imagine what was going through the Egyptians' minds at this point. Now, this didn't all happen in you know, immediate succession, as in like one day, then the next day, then the next day. Days, perhaps months, are taking place from the first plague to the ninth plague. As wonder after wonder and power after power are being demonstrated to the people of Egypt. And you've got to wonder at some point if they weren't looking at these people who were slaves and seeing Moses speaking and the power and authority with which he spoke. And they said, man, we're not faring too well. And it seems to make a lot of sense that the God that that man Moses is speaking of has true authority. Actually, we actually read this in the text, Exodus chapter 11, verse 3. As the nations are looking in on the people of God, we read this. And the Lord gave the people, that's the, the Jewish people of God, he gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Isn't that an interesting little detail we get? We might gloss over that. But here's what's happening. God's people are obeying God's words. They're speaking boldly of the God of the Bible. And they're speaking, proclaiming, but then there's actions of wonder happening behind them. And the nations are looking in and saying, there's something to this. Now we remember from Genesis through Revelation, God's plan for all of history is to redeem for himself a people from every nation and people group under the sun. And here in the story of Exodus, through the plagues, he is accomplishing just that. Before Exodus chapter 12 is over, that's where I'm taking us through today. Before Exodus 12 is over, as the God's people are leaving Israel out of slavery, you know who comes with them? We're told a mixed multitude from the nations come with them. Egyptians come with them. And all through the Exodus, what we find is that they were Egyptians who had trusted in God and they were living with God's people because they came out of Egypt with them. God has a plan to win for himself a people from every nation and people group. And the Passover, the plagues are no exception to that mission of God. Every page of scripture reminds us of that story. Now in the ninth plague, darkness settled over the entire land. That's where we landed last week. We left our people... They were in light in Goshen, but Egypt was in darkness. Now, as readers and students of the Bible, we know that darkness always has a deeper spiritual meaning as well, doesn't it? As darkness settles in, they couldn't see their hand in front of their face or the person they were speaking to. There was fear and there was trembling, but there was also a hellish rebellion to God that was settling in among the people of Egypt who were still stubbornly refusing to trust in Yahweh. Things were getting bad. Now let me read to you the account of God's instructions for the tenth and final plague. Exodus chapter 11 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterward he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Jump down to verses 4 and 5. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever 
will be again. Now, let's try to understand this. The final plague would be the death of every firstborn, both Egyptian and slave, in the land of Egypt. Now, let's critique this for a moment. Number one, once again, this plague would be an attack on the gods of Egypt. Because who was the most powerful and most important god in Egypt? It was Pharaoh. He was considered divine. And who was going to take over for that Pharaoh when he died? His firstborn son. And so he was considered divine. And he was going to be the most divine in Egypt. And so God has gone through all the host of the Egyptian gods and said, he's not God, he's not God, he's not God, he's not God, and he is not God. It's an attack on the gods of Egypt. Number two, God is reversing the sins of Egypt. Pharaoh had attempted unsuccessfully, because Moses survived, to kill unjustly all the firstborn of the people of God. And with the same judgment that Pharaoh dished out, he is now being judged. Number three, did you notice that no one is exempt? This is universal condemnation. That's the theological term for this. The first nine plagues, it's Egypt. They're the sinners. They're the terrible, wicked people. They're the ones who are having slavery. They're the ones who are killing infants. They're the ones who are increasing their, the load of the slaves and, and not giving them the necessities they need. They're the ones who are inhumane and not treating every person with the dignity of life. They're the sinners. But when it comes to the 10th plague, it's the Egyptians and the slaves that are guilty before a holy God. And judgment is coming for everyone in the entire land of Egypt. There is no one who can escape the wrath of God that is coming for the sins against God. Both the people of God and the Egyptians are going to stand underneath the judgment of God when he comes to take the firstborn. This is universal condemnation of sin before a holy God. Let's read Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 to 13 as we read this story. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month for you shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Notice, this would be such a critical turning point in the people of God that forever from then and still today, the Jewish people would mark their calendars by this event. This would define them. This would define how they tell time. This would be the start of the calendar for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can, each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be, here are the instructions, without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. So there's four days that go by from the 10th to the 14th. They select their lamb on the 10th, and then on the 14th, they're going to sacrifice it. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood, and they should put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat this sacrifice. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. 
anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Judgment was coming for every household and every person in the land of Egypt. But those who would faithfully take the instructions of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, there would be a way out. There would be an escape from the judgment that was coming. Though everyone was guilty, God was going to make a way to receive innocence, essentially. Debt paid. Each family was to take a lamb, a male lamb, one year old without blemish. That means they were supposed to go through their entire flock and look for the best lamb that they could offer God and make sure that they were not giving him of their, of their second best, but they were giving him of the first fruits, a male lamb. All throughout history and throughout the nations, frankly, lambs have been a symbol of innocence. Take this innocent animal. But for the Jewish people, that must have rang a bell for them. Because as they remember the book of Genesis and the oral tradition of their elders that they would have been told week in and week out as they gathered in homes, they would remember that lambs played a very important role in the history of God and his dealing with people. Perhaps they'd go back to Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's first sons, and they'd remember that Cain offered from his harvest while Abel offered the first fruits from his flock of sheep. And it was Abel's sacrifice that was acceptable in the eyes of God, but Cain's was not acceptable. Perhaps they went into Abraham, and they remembered when God laid Abraham up a hill with his firstborn son, with Isaac, his firstborn son in the line of God, and, and it, he took him up a hill, and, and rather than Abraham having to sacrifice Isaac, God provided what for Abraham? What was it? He provided a sheep. And, and that sheep would die in the place of Isaac. Therefore, the sheep would die as a substitute for Isaac. Here, the people of God are told, take a lamb. People, that in the tradition that I've been doing with your people, in the tradition of God's people, that lambs have deep significance because they symbolize innocence. And you take that lamb. And on the 14th day, you're going to cut its neck and you're going to kill it. And you're going to catch all its blood in a basin. You're going to sacrifice that lamb as an offering to me, but what you're going to do with the blood is unique here. You're going to take that blood and you're going to put it over the doorposts of the house. And then I want each of you to pass underneath that blood and enter into the home because when I come down to give judgment, just judgment over the sins of this land, and I see that blood, and I see that you've decided to sit your family underneath that blood, I'm going to pass over you. And that lamb's blood will serve as a substitute that says someone's already died in this house. Therefore, there is no more death to come to those who are underneath the blood of the lamb. So God's people faithfully took the lamb, which, by the way, was also a god in the eyes of Jesus, in the eyes of Egypt. And so they took a lamb, and in an act of defiance, they killed this lamb. That would have been an act of essentially warfare in Egypt. They took the blood, not fully understanding everything, but they painted it over the doorpost, and they settled in for the dark night in their homes, trusting. 
that God would spare them because a lamb had been slain on their behalf. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 36, we read how that night went. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night, and he said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And then he begs them, will you bless me as you go? It's an act of throwing a Hail Mary. Just do something to bless me because I have nothing left, says Pharaoh. I've been defeated. This is the first Passover. This is the story that is to be told of God's people every year as they remember what God did when a lamb was slain on behalf of God's people so that judgment would not come on them but would come on the lamb instead. Now this first Passover is a shadow of the greater Passover. It's a true story. This actually happened in history. This is God's dealing with humanity. And this is a moment that we have to remember what God's done in history. But we also have to remember, like many stories in the Old Testament, it's a shadow that finds its substance in the fullness of Jesus Christ. The fullness would not take place there in Egypt, but it would happen in Jerusalem many years later. We're first told of this by John the Baptist. Remember when Jesus was about to begin his ministry, he goes out and he's going to get baptized by John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist is looking out and he sees Jesus come over the horizon and he recognizes who it is, we're told this. The next day he saw Jesus in John chapter 1 verse 29. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and John said... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is directly connecting Jesus to the Passover lamb in that moment. He's not just using any random metaphorical language. He's saying this is the Passover lamb. This is the one who will die on behalf of the world, who will give his blood so that there will be a substitute for the judgment of sin that is coming. John, before Jesus' ministry even began, knew exactly who Jesus was and knew exactly the shadow of the first Passover and what its substance would actually be. It was Jesus who at the last Lord's Supper, the communion meal that we're going to celebrate today, that communion meal that he celebrated when Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper was in fact a celebration of the Passover. That's what they were gathered for. They were following the Lord's instructions that they were supposed to celebrate this meal year in, year out. In John chapter, or Matthew chapter 26, verse 17, it says this, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, the first day of unleavened bread is the Passover meal celebration. The Passover got extended into a week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So on the first day on the Passover, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so they sat down. And Jesus, celebrating this Passover meal with his disciples, then picks up the cup, the wine, that signified the blood of the Lamb that was shed for the people of God so that the judgment of God would pass over them and a substitute had died in their place. He picks up that cup and he looks to his disciples, he says, and he took the cup, Matthew 26, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus takes the wine that represents the blood of the Lamb, and he applies it to himself. He says, I'm giving this cup new meaning. This has all new meaning. That was a shadow. I'm the substance, and I have come, and I'm going to spill my blood. And the next time you take this meal, you're not going to be remembering the Passover lamb that was slain. You're going to remember Jesus, because he is the Passover lamb, the final Passover lamb that was slain for you on your behalf. Jesus would go to the cross, and as an innocent lamb, innocent, without guilt, and they searched him, didn't they? Pontius Pilate had a moment where he went through and he... He questioned him, and he interrogated him, and he found him not guilty. He was innocent. And he shed his blood on a cross in order that those who had placed themselves underneath his blood would have forgiveness of sins. Because judgment is coming against sinners like you and me. But those who would go underneath God's provision, God's substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf, when judgment comes, God would look at that lamb and say, a lamb has been slayed on behalf of that person. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they are no longer going to be held under judgment because judgment came on Jesus, the substitute that died in their place. This is the centrality of the Christian faith. Everything hinges on this truth, that Jesus is the final Passover lamb. He's the final Passover lamb whose blood was shed on a cross as a substitute for sinners like you and me. So that rather than God's judgment falling on us, it fell on him. I'll tell you what, that's good news for a sinner like me. That, that's good news for a sinner like me. In fact, I can think of no better news for a sinner like me that God has made a way for me to go underneath the blood and say that wrath is coming, but I've taken shelter underneath his blood. I know my mind. I know the sins I've committed. And if I were to die today and stand on my judgment, I know exactly how I would fare. There would be death and hell awaiting a sinner like me. But God has provided a way for me to put blood over my doorpost so that when I enter underneath it, God looks down on me and he says, one has died on his behalf. Jesus is the final Passover lamb. From that truth, the Christian church does not move one inch. One inch. We never are known for anything else. That is the thing which we are hinged upon. That is the truth from which we do not budge. Though everyone else does not want to talk about blood, we proclaim blood. The powerful, precious blood of the Lamb that was sacrificed on our behalf. Now, if the Passover has such deep meaning, then there ought to be some practical things for us to work through right now. And there is a lot. And I want to walk through this with us slowly. This is where this gets very practical. If you've covered yourself in the blood of the Lamb, if Jesus is your King and you've pronounced faith in Jesus Christ, then you have forgiveness of sin. But you also have victory over sin. You have forgiveness of sin, but you also have victory over sin. What happened at the end of this Exodus story? Pharaoh says, you can finally go. And then in Exodus chapter 12, verse 36, let me read you what happens. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. 
God's people sat underneath the blood of the lamb. And then when they left Egypt, they didn't leave as slaves anymore. They left as conquerors. They left as victorious over their slave masters. The very thing that they identified with in the past was no longer true of them. And they had been made victorious in Christ. Sometimes I think as a church we have no concept of what victory in Christ means because we live in the same sinful behavior over and over and over again. And one of two things is what we say. Either we say it's no big deal, which is an affront to the nature of God, or we say I'll just never get over it, which is an affront to the victory of Christ. Because in the blood of Jesus Christ, there is victory over sin, Satan, and death. This is every one of our stories. When you look back on who you were, if you have gone underneath the blood of the Lamb, you have a story that I once was this. I was a slave. I was in sin, but I've experienced victory because Jesus plundered Satan. He defeated him, and Satan has no more hold over your life. The only hold he has is the hold you give him by continuing to stay in sin. He's been defeated once and for all. This is every one of our stories. What is your Egypt? Where have you come out of slavery? Where were you in bondage and being held down and you couldn't have life in the full? And then Jesus, by his blood, powerfully changed you and set you on a new path. Maybe for you it was a love of comfort. Maybe it was the fear of not having enough. Maybe it was the need to be known and understood. Maybe for you it was an addiction to drugs and alcohol or an addiction to anger. Maybe it was an addiction to lust and adultery. Maybe it was an addiction to risky behavior and just a, a not even caring about God's commands or thinking twice about breaking God's commands. Maybe it was the fear of being all alone or the fear of not being good enough. Maybe you carry with you the scars of self-loathing and self-hatred. Maybe for you it was fatherlessness. Where has God brought you out from? Every Christian has to know their story. Because you were once held in slavery. But Jesus shed his blood. And if you have passed underneath the blood, you've received forgiveness of sins and conquering victory over the enemy. Sin has no hold on you anymore. And so when you need to conquer sin, when you need to look back, you don't need another self-help book. You don't need a new program. You need the blood of the Lamb. And we go back to it over and over again. We get on our knees and we say, I proclaim the blood of the Lamb. I proclaim it. It has no hold of me. I have a lustful mind. And I pray the blood of the Lamb over my mind transform me. And then we stay in that space until we're delivered fully. Fully from it. And you have a church around you that prays that same thing with you. And they say, the blood of the Lamb has power for you. I'm going to hold you accountable. And I want to see you transformed. The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. This is the story of Christianity. It's not just that God brought us out of Egypt in the past. It's not just that we were delivered. It's that we continue to be delivered by Jesus as well. Every one of our stories, we've been delivered once over victory, over sin, over death. It has no hold on us anymore. But we are not yet perfect. That happens after we die. And just like God's people of Israel, the next few chapters, they fail pretty much every turn. They grumble in the wilderness. They turn to idol worship. They backslide. That's what we call it. We put nice terms around it in modern-day Christianity. Idol worshiping is called backsliding. And what we do is we fall. But you know what? God continues to transform us. He's not done with us. 
And the same transformation process has to be true of us today. For some of you, you, you overcame tremendous things when God changed your life. Addictions. Years ago, he changed your life. And you're still clinging to that stuff God did back here. There's nothing fresh. What's he doing today? You, you overcame addiction to this over here, but, but you still have deep-seated control issues. You still got anger that God hasn't even begun to work on you, yet and everyone knows it around you, but you're just staying there. And God caused you to transformation. The blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb. We take shelter under the blood of the lamb, and he forgives us our sin, and then he transforms us. There is no greater news. There's no greater news than this. You know, I, I have a feeling that there's some in this room today that need to be reminded that there is a judgment that is coming. We are all allotted to live once, then die, then face judgment. That is our story. It's your story. Whether you believe it or not, it's your story. It's going to happen. And there's one of two cases. And my question to you is what I had to ask myself. If you were to die today, and you were to stand in that judgment before a holy God, and he were to judge you on your actions, what would be the judgment that you found? I know what mine would be. I'm deserving of hell. There's only two cases. There are those who on that day will say, I have taken shelter underneath the blood of the Lamb, and Jesus has forgiven me. And on that day, God will look down and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the home I've prepared for you. And there are those who have rejected God's provision and have chosen to try to be their own gods and have not gone underneath the blood of the Lamb, and death and judgment is awaiting for some in this room, you may have been confused of what Christianity is all about. Maybe you thought Christianity was all about right living and morality and just another way to have a good set of morals and virtues about your life. Come to church, be a good person, pay your taxes. That's not Christianity. The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. We repeat it. We don't budge from it. Some in this room today, you need to turn today and trust in the blood of the Lamb for the first time. Come in underneath that shelter where there is forgiveness of sins and victory over sin. Transformational life. There is no shame in accepting Jesus. It's God's provision. He's made a way. Would you receive it with me this morning? I'm going to pray for every one of us in this room right now. We all need to be reminded of what God's done on our behalf. And for many in this room, I believe you need to receive Jesus for the first time today. For many, I believe you have yet to truly trust in the blood, the provision that God's made, the judgment would befall him and not you. If that's you, will you pray with me right now? Jesus, God, thank you that you have made provision. God, we trust in the blood of the Lamb. We trust that Jesus died on our behalf and that there is no more debt to be paid. He is the final sacrificial Lamb. No more sacrifices. You see his blood over our life and we receive forgiveness of sin. Oh God, I pray for those who are trusting in you right now that you would powerfully work in their life and even now before they leave this room, they would experience not just forgiveness but transformation, that their mind would be renewed because you just got a hold of them. You rescued him. You plundered the enemy. Victory over sin, Satan, and death. And you're sending him out of here as a new person, victorious over sin. And Jesus, we praise you this morning that you have us, that we have taken shelter underneath your blood. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.